When the Space Development Agency launched 10 satellites last week, it was as much a victory for its acquisition program as for its satellite development program. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr attended the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Security Forum last week and got some of the details. But you didn't get to go to the launch itself, though, huh? I'm really sorry I didn't in sunny California. All right. Well, they're loud and light-filled and smoke-filled and lots of fun if you like big, smoky, loud things. But tell us about the satellite launch. What were you able to learn there? Well, the 10 satellites were launched from Vandenberg Space Force Base uh, near San Luis Obispo in California. And it was the first of 28 satellites that SDA is calling Tranche Zero. The idea is to put lots of smaller, cheaper satellites into the air, satellites that they can get pretty quickly. These satellites are low-Earth orbit satellites, they're LEOs, and they're going to be used for communication and training. SDA is pushing forward with this group of satellites, and they have a new launch coming up pretty soon. Here's Space Development Agency Director Derek Turnier. Then in June, we have the second launch. So the Tranche Zero is made up of 28 total satellites. What the whole idea is that will demonstrate that we can form a mesh network with multiple vendors. We can take those tactical data, get them directly down to theater, and we can do advanced missile detection of targets that that, uh, we don't typically see and track and form targeting solutions on and demonstrate that entire thing. And just to be clear, what they did is launch 12 of these satellites from a single rocket launch, correct? Yes, 10 satellites. 10 satellites, so they sort of popped out of the pea pod, but there was only one actual rocket that went into space. Yeah, so small satellites here. And what do they have to do next with Tranche Zero? I guess they got to get them coordinated and programmed or what? They're getting ready for the second launch with different rockets. And Aside from the launch itself, the real news here is is actually the acquisition process. They went from authority to, to proceed to launch in just two and a half years. Space Force has been pushing forward pretty aggressively to shorten the acquisition and production times. And after they finish with this 28 satellites, they're going to move forward with Tranche 1, slated to launch next year. Here's Derek Turnier again. When we launch the real Tranche 1, which is our first operational tranche, we can turn those data quickly and turn that into an operational capability, and the warfighters have already been training on it. So we're actually only 18 months away from our first Tranche 1 launch, which is, which is pretty exciting. So Tranche 1 has about 150 satellites on it to be able to do the, the missile warning, missile tracking, and that tactical data link uh, connectivity. That starts to launch next September, and then we essentially have, we have 12 launches, and uh, they'll probably be about a month apart. All right, and then they are keeping this program on schedule, which is something in itself, as you say, with the acquisition programs. How have they been able to do that? And are they expected to stay on schedule? You know, Tom, they had a few delays early on. The first of those satellites was originally scheduled to launch in 2022. And the original cost was supposed to be $14.1 million per satellite. It came out averaging about $15 million per satellite. And as you see, they just finish launching that first group. But the big picture is that Space Force is considering this a victory for its method of developing and buying satellites. Here's Derek Turnier. Pillar number one is proliferation, hundreds and hundreds of satellites to be able to provide these missions. And number two, the spiral development. We've got to get out of this model of where we do acquisition and it takes us 10 years to develop a program and then uh, we, we fly the program for 15 years. The department and the Space Force is leading that way now, saying, no, we are, we are completely behind this model where we, we, do, we do rapid rapid prototyping and fielding 
We operate that for a limited lifetime, say five years, and we continue to build that up. That's a lot of stuff flying around in orbit, low Earth orbit. I guess tranche zero sounds a little bit like kind of glorified space junk if it's not doing anything. But getting back to the acquisition model, is this something that the Space Force will use throughout its other commands because it seems to be successful? It sounds like they are doing that. And what Space Development Agency is saying, look, we've followed this program and it's working for us. They're also very quick to give credit to Space Force Acquisition Chief Frank Calvelli. He developed nine tenets of good acquisition policy. And those tenets include building smaller satellites, smaller ground systems, and minimizing non-recurring engineering. He also says you have to award executable contracts and then make sure they get delivered on time, on cost, and with capabilities that work. Here's Derek Turnier. One can actually build and launch these satellites on the timeframes that we've proposed. We'll show that again here in June, and we'll continue to show that as we build out in Field Tranche 1, which will allow us to be able to bring the capability directly to the warfighter to support a fight in 2025. And so that's what, that's what we're excited about. We'll continue to push forward with this. Uh, we'll continue to follow the way this is, this is enabled is by using Secretary Calvelli's tenants, which if you, if you read those tenants, they essentially codify everything SDA is doing, so you can tell we have a lot of support there. One of the things that they keep repeating is how much better it is to build these small satellites. And not only are they cheaper and faster to get a hold of, but the idea is that they're, they're a good defensive capability because it's hard to shoot down so many of them. I heard one of the Space Force generals saying last week that the missile to shoot down one of these satellites would actually be more expensive than the satellite itself. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. When you look at satellites, say, take the James Webb telescope, there's one of them, and it took 20 years to build, and I don't know how many billions and billions and billions of dollars and a billion-dollar launch to launch it, and it's paying off great results. At the opposite end is you can build 100 of them in a year and a half and get those launched. So it's really a wide range of technologies, and good to see Space Force having this redundancy because, as you say, even if China shoots down one, there's 100 more. Right. They sort of, It's the swarm theory. And again, it's more expensive to shoot them down than it is to have them up there. Of course, it could be worth the price if you were able to take out the enemy's communications. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, 
my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 
50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.